Over the past three years or so, we have experienced a sad and scary trend among evangelicals. 20 and 30-somethings who grew up in the church are walking away from the faith. Rhett and Link, the comedic duo behind the popular YouTube show Good Mythical Morning, used to openly call themselves Christians, but in February of 2020, they announced that they had left the faith. Now they call themselves, quote, hopeful agnostics. May of 2020, just one year ago, John Steingard, frontman for Christian band Hawk Nelson, posted, quote, I no longer believe in God. The process has come to be known as deconversion or the deconstruction of faith. The result is a growing number of ex-evangelicals who are done with Christianity. Now, the reasons are varied, but some common themes emerge. Painful experiences with the church, troubling questions about God and the Bible, changing views on social issues like homosexuality or gender identity. And if you'll listen to their stories, you'll come to understand that deconstruction is almost never a spontaneous decision. It's usually a long and painful process. And it leaves some angry. Like, for example, this ex-evangelical who has one million followers on his TikTok videos. He said, quote, Evangelicalism is a destructive, narrow-minded worldview. And one of the most destructive, narrow-minded aspects of it is that its adherents feel as if they are the entirety of Christianity rather than the tiny sliver of it that they actually are. Evangelicalism is a toddler tradition that's cousins with Catholicism and the snot-nosed little sibling of mainline Protestant denominations. Christianity is a big family. I'm just saying that one of the kids is kind of being a brat, and most of the rest of the family agrees. He laughs. This is a fun analogy. That was Abraham Piper, John Piper's son. Deconstruction leaves others relieved contemplative. Like, for example, Josh Harris, author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye and the former pastor of Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, a large influential church in our circles. This former pastor, Josh, in July of 2019, made his decision public with this Instagram post, and I quote, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. 
by all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to be open to this, but I'm not not there right now. I don't view this moment negatively, Josh says. I feel very much alive and awake and surprisingly hopeful. You know, from posts like these and the literally millions of people who follow them and like them, we know that deconstruction is contagious. For example, Hannah K. Bryant replied to Josh Harris's announcement with this, this is the post that started my deconstruction, so thank you, with a heart emoji. How do we respond to this? How do we respond when it's not some distant celebrity associated with the church, but it's your friend and fellow church member, or worse, your son or your daughter? We're going to find out how to respond in our sermon text today. Please take your Bible, turn to Jude the next-to-last book in the New Testament. This morning, our sermon text is Jude 22 and 23. While deconstruction might be trending in America, it's nothing new, my friends. The little book of Jude is actually a letter written to the church in Palestine Because false teachers had come in like wolves in sheep's clothing. And they were leading some who were part of the church to doubt the faith and others to depart from the faith altogether. Jude, in this letter, calls the church to, in verse 3, quote, contend for the faith. Which sometimes when Christians hear that, we think to contend with the false teachers, but that's not Jude's emphasis. Jude's emphasis is contend for yourselves and for others. Last week, we talked about what it looks like to contend for yourselves. And this week, As we talk about contending for others, my prayer is that we will fight for one another's faith. Do you hear that, Christian friend? This text calls us to fight for one another's faith. That's my prayer. And a word to those who might be somewhere on the spectrum of deconstruction. While this sermon is not necessarily directed toward you, I pray that you'll be filled with hope. That after listening to this text, you'll come to see that the church is the best place to deal with your doubts. 
So let's read our sermon text, Jude 22 and 23, and we're going to begin in verse 20 to get the context. This is God's word. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That'll end the reading of God's word for today, and may he bless it for the preservation of our souls. How should we respond to those who are doubting the faith and those who are departing the faith? Well, Jude gives three straightforward responses. Three straightforward responses in verse 22 and 23. Number one, have mercy on those who are dealing with doubt. Have mercy on those who are dealing with doubt. Number two, Rescue those who are moving toward judgment. Rescue those who are moving toward judgment. Number three, show mercy to those who are engaged in sin. But be careful that you don't fall into the temptation of sin yourselves. Have mercy on those who are engaging in sin, but be careful that you don't fall into the temptation of sin yourself. Now, rather than talking about these individually, I want us to look at four things that Jude emphasizes in all three. And I'm doing that because I believe that Understanding how we're supposed to respond comes from understanding why. And the why we respond this way comes from what Jude emphasizes throughout these three straightforward imperatives. So emphasis number one. Jude emphasizes others, others, others throughout his encouragement to the church. The church should be concerned about, keyword others. Jude has three kinds of others in view here. Notice the text. Each one of these others has succumbed to the false teachers in some sort of way. In the verse just prior, verse 21, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now he says, contend for the faith of others. Who are these others? Well, others, number one, those who are dealing with doubts. Do you see that in verse 22? Some are doubting the faith once delivered to all the saints in verse three. They're doubting this because these false teachers have come into the church and have announced that they've had dreams in which God has revealed to them new doctrine. 
These are influential, well-respected people that they know. And because they know them and respect them, what they say is holding water. Now they're doubting the apostolic faith and they're beginning to believe these novel revelations of God. Others, number two. Look in verse 23a. Those who are moving toward judgment. I say moving toward judgment because notice in verse 23, save others by doing what? Snatching them out of the fire. These are those who are on their way out and what Jude says is that they are on their way toward the fire representing judgment. Now, Jude has already given us from verse 5 through 19 more than half of the letter a picture of who these false teachers are and the number one thing that Jude wants the church to know is that these false teachers, though influential now, are only headed for judgment by Jesus Christ. Don't let them fool you. They're going nowhere but to destruction. So others, number two, are those who are moving toward that same destructive fire of judgment. Jude's point, be concerned about others. Others, number three, look at the end of verse 23. Those who are engaging in sin. Do you see that? To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I say that these are those engaging in sin because their garments are stained by the flesh. And when the New Testament talks about the flesh, it's talking about our sinful flesh. These are those who have departed the faith following the heretics who Jude has labored to explain to us one of the things that they're teaching is that God has revealed to them in dreams that the biblical sexual ethic is not the way we should live. That, that grace allows a free expression of human sexuality. You would have to go back and read the book again or listen to the sermons that we've preached on this to understand why. But look in verse 4. These heretics are perverting the grace of God into sensuality, keyword. Verse 7, they're indulging in sexual immorality and pursuing unnatural desire like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in verse 8, they're defiling their flesh. So those who are following the heretics are following them into a lifestyle of sexual sin. Three kinds of others. Those dealing with doubts, those moving toward judgment, and those engaging in sin. Now, I observe a progression. It seems to me that, that Jude is showing those who are dealing with doubt, moving all the way to those who are engaged in embracing an anti-biblical lifestyle. Beginning here, moving toward these. 
Now, if you see yourself on this spectrum, friend, please turn around. Turn around and follow Jesus rather than following the false teaching of our society. Because as Romans chapter 1 teaches, it leads nowhere but to judgment and destruction. In God's mercy, he keeps us from what our sinful hearts want. But in God's judgment, he gives us over to what our sinful hearts want. If you see yourself on this spectrum, please turn around and follow Jesus instead of the false teaching of the culture. And if you know someone on this spectrum, what's Jude telling you? Be concerned about them. Be concerned about people who are doubting. Be concerned about, about people who are on their way out or embracing sinful lifestyles. Be concerned. Why? Why should the church be others-minded? Friends, it's because Jesus is others-minded. And that is the salvation of every one of our souls. We should be concerned about others because Jesus was not concerned about himself. But Philippians chapter 2 teaches us that Jesus was looking after our interest. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He became human. He humbled himself and sacrificed himself on the cross for our sin. Jesus was others-minded and his gospel calls all of us to be others-minded as well. Please take that emphasis away from this text this morning. So how should we respond to these others who are doubting and departing? Emphasis number two. Jude emphasizes mercy. Mercy. Did you see it? His exhortation here is saturated with mercy. Look at verse 22. Have mercy on them. Verse 23. Show mercy. Why? Why should the church respond with mercy? Because Jesus responded to us with mercy. And aren't you glad? In verse chapter, uh, in, in verse two, Jude says to the church, mercy is, look at this in verse two, multiplied to you in Christ. What do you get from the gospel of Jesus? Mercy, friends. Not what you deserve, but mercy. Verse 21, we are those who are waiting for what at the judgment of Christ? Mercy. When Jesus comes, he has nothing but mercy to give to his own. That is the gospel and none of us deserve it. So, 
in verse 22 and 23, we who have received mercy give mercy to others. Mercy does not come naturally when people doubt what you believe and walk away thinking you're an idiot. Mercy doesn't come naturally when you've been rejected. So Jude says, don't be irritated with those who doubt. Don't say good riddance to those who depart. Don't be disgusted by those who are defiled with sin. Our response is mercy because our experience is mercy. Dane Ortland, in his excellent book, Gentle and Lowly, writes, Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. I wonder if that describes you, friend. I'm so glad that it describes Jesus. The testimony of the four Gospels, Ortland says, is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward sin and suffering, not away from it. And the mercy of Jesus that moves toward us tells us to move toward sinners and sufferers like us. Mercy. Mercy. So what does that merciful response look like specifically? Emphasis number three. It looks like action. It looks like verbs that are imperative, not just indicative, stating a fact, but imperative, calling the church to action about those others, about showing mercy. Jude calls the church to action concerning those who doubt and depart. We cannot think to ourselves, there's nothing that we can do. God has to do it all. The very nature of the words that Jude uses and that the Spirit has chosen says there is something that we can do. And in fact, there is something, church, that we must do. The church is under attack Those in this room, your children, your friends, your family. Some of them are doubting and deconstructing and departing. It's not enough to grieve. It's not enough to pray. Jude says, fight for their faith. 
And he gives three imperatives. The reason that Jude calls us to action is because Jesus took action to rescue us. And just as the salvation that God ordained required the action of Jesus, the preservation that God ordains for His church requires the action of the church that God designed. And God designed the church so that we would help each other follow Jesus. What are these three imperatives? What is the action specifically? It might be helpful even before we begin to note that there are textual variants here. That means that the best Greek manuscripts that we have are a little different from each other, not massively and significantly. They all contain the three ideas, but ESV, NIV, and ASB use three imperatives, whereas the King James Version only has two imperatives and then includes the third idea, but not in an imperatible sense. So I'm following the ESV this morning. I think it's reliable, credible, excellent. And if we followed the King James Version, that would be fine too. You would still get all three of these ideas and they still call us to action. Imperative number one in verse 22, Jude says, have mercy. Have mercy on those dealing with doubt. What does Jude mean by have mercy? Having mercy is both possessing it and showing it. Read the Bible and you'll find out that if you truly possess mercy or love, you will show it. And if you say, I possess mercy or love, but don't show it, you're full of hot air. Mercy possessed is mercy shown. So just as Jesus, the gentle and lowly Jesus, in compassion and mercy, move toward us, we move toward those who are doubting. Just like Jesus with Thomas, patiently, lovingly dealt with Thomas's doubts by the truth of his resurrection. Jesus said in John 20, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Put your hand here in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus helped Thomas with his doubts by presenting him with truth. And friends, that's what we're called to do. We have mercy. We move toward those who are in doubt with the truth. Listen, we're not afraid of deep questions about God. In fact, 
If you don't have any deep and troubling questions about God and his word, you're not thinking. Rather than running away from it, we encourage an intellectual pursuit of God and his word. We encourage you to love God with all of your mind. So when people have doubts, rather than shaming them, we, we try to help them with the truth. Part of that is meeting together, studying the Bible together. Part of that is providing excellent resources like we have downstairs or very often like you'll hear me mention in sermons. By the way, I I brought one this morning. If you're anywhere in the process of deconstructing your faith, if you know anyone who is in the process of deconstructing your faith, let me recommend this excellent little book, Before You Lose Your Faith. It's by a number of writers connected with the gospel coalition. I found it incredibly refreshing. But helping one another with the truth, counseling and discipling one another with the gospel is one of the most basic ways that the church functions as a redemptive community that helps each other to keep following Jesus. And in order to to grow in the faith and to to fight for one another's faith, Ephesians chapter 4 that Nick read for us this morning tells us that we speak the truth in love and we help build each other up in the faith. Because Jesus said in John 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And when we move toward those who doubt with the truth, then the Bible holds out the hope that, quote, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Notice, our part is to move toward one another with the truth. But God has to open the eyes of the heart. God does his work through the action of his people. I'm confident God will work. Jude is encouraging us to act. First thing, have mercy on those who doubt. Move toward them. Imperative number two. Verse 23 at the beginning. Rescue those who are moving toward judgment. Rescue them. What does the Bible say specifically? Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Save others. You say, oh, I can't do anything to save anyone else. Jude seems to beg to differ with you. Jude seems to say, you're right. God does the ultimate saving, but he uses us. The word save means to rescue, to deliver. And we have a part to play 
And notice that we rescue by snatching them out of the fire that they're headed toward. There's an urgency about that church because there's an urgency. In fact, throughout all time, an epidemic of people leaving the truth and headed toward the deception of the, and the lies of the devil. So we play our part by helping to share the gospel and thereby snatching people. Do you, do you hear that? Snatching them, reaching out, grabbing and pulling them back. That's love in action. Key word, action. Don't tell me that you love your neighbors if you're not going to share the gospel with them. Don't tell me you love your kids if you keep your mouth shut and only talk to God. Love is in action with the truth. And when you work, you partner with God who is at work in the hearts and minds of people. What's the hope of every hiker who wanders off the trail and is lost in the woods? What's the hope of every sailor who loses power in a storm and and drifts off course? What's the hope of everyone who grew up in the church and now finds themselves doubting and departing the faith? It's that someone loves them enough to go get them. That's your job. That's our calling. James chapter 5 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Friends, we've got to. Listen, if you want to walk away from Jesus and you're part of this church, you're going to have to walk over me. You're going to have to walk over every member of this church. I love you too much to let you walk away from Jesus without getting in your way. And I hope you'll love me enough to get in my way if my doubts and my own sinful heart ever start to lead me away to depart from Jesus. Please, brothers and sisters, get in my way. Imperative number three. At the end of verse 23, most translations list this as an imperative. King James lists it as a participle, which has imperatible force. What does Jude mean there at the end of verse 23 when he says, Two others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. It's the same imperative as verse 22. I don't know why the ESV at the beginning of 22 says, Have mercy, and then in the end of 23 translate the exact same Greek word, show mercy? You got to have it and show it for both. But the point here is that how do we respond to those who have embraced anti-biblical lifestyles of 
whatever sin they happen to be embracing here in this context, some type of sexuality that is against God's design? How do we move toward? I mean, how do we respond? We move toward them. We actively move toward those, do you hear this, who live anti-biblical sexual lifestyles. Move toward them. What an indictment against the church who by and large is repulsed by sinners who adopt that sort of lifestyle. I'm glad Jesus didn't think that way about us in our sin. This third exhortation comes with some instructions, which leads us to Jude's final emphasis. A warning. Others, mercy, action. Fight for one another's faith, friends. I don't care if they're doubting or departing. Go get them. Work toward them. Snatch them. But... There's a warning label, but emphasis number four, the church is being warned about the dangers of helping those who depart, the dangers of helping those who depart. And that's true, real, and a little bit strange, isn't it? The dangers. There's a warning here. Read verse 23 at the end again. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we're supposed to show mercy to those who are engaging in sin, but while you're helping them, be careful that you yourself don't fall into the same temptation. We're to help with fear. Fear is that healthy respect and caution about the dangers of temptation. Do not think that you are above temptation. Respect it. For example, Galatians chapter 6 reinforces this. Paul says to this local church, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual... Restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The church is being warned about the danger of temptation because even Jesus experienced the temptation of sin and Jesus is the only one who was able to resist it. I love it when Rosaria Butterfield says, Jesus dined with sinners, but he didn't sin with sinners. Be careful, friends. The danger's real. As a Christian and especially as a pastor, 
I have the opportunity to deal with people in their sin a lot. And I, I feel very privileged and humbled to be able to do so, but I do it with fear. I do it with that healthy respect because I have experienced the temptation that comes from helping others in their sin in these two specific ways, in fact. First of all, over, over the past year or two, I have been talking with someone who is sort of in the process of deconstructing his own faith, and i got to tell you that my conversations with him have led to my own doubts about what I believe. And over the years, I've worked with many men, and specifically men, in their various sexual temptations. And inevitably, those conversations present real temptation for me conversation about lust and pornography and all manner of sexual temptation just brings it before my mind and and I walk away from those conversations and I'm presented with a heightened temptation myself. I have to keep watch on myself. Would you please pray for me that I don't doubt, that I don't depart, that I don't sin. Jude tells us how we can help, not just with fear, but look, help, but hate. Don't hate the sinner. Hate what? Look at the end of verse 23 even the garments stained by the flesh. This idea of garments stained by the flesh probably comes from Zechariah chapter 3, where we see the high priest Joshua and his filthy garments. And what happens? His filthy garments stained by the flesh, the sinful flesh, are taken from him, and the high priest is given pure garments, clean in the righteousness of God. While we're helping people with sin, we have to continue to hate the very sin that deeply stains and defiles us. We hate it by remembering that sin offends God. We hate it by remembering that sin ruins everything. Friends, everything. From the shalom in which God created it, to your marriage, sin ruins everything. And not only does sin offend God and sin ruin everything, but sin crucified Jesus. Hate it. Hate it and recognize that following Jesus by faith removes our filthy garments, and clothes us with his righteous garments. That's the gospel. So Jude tells the church, there's three ways that we respond to those who are doubting and departing. Number one, have mercy on those who are dealing with doubts. Don't be disappointed in them. 
Don't be irritated and frustrated with them. Have mercy. Move toward them with truth. Number two, rescue those who are moving toward judgment. Don't say good riddance. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. No. Snatch them from the fires of judgment. Do everything you can to get in their way. Rescue them. Number three, show mercy to those who are engaging in sin. Show mercy to them. Don't be repulsed by them. Don't think that you're going to be holy by avoiding them and their sinful lifestyle. How self-righteous are we? To keep ourselves at arm's length from sinners when Jesus embraces us and calls us to come to him so that we can be forgiven and cleansed. But, but, while we roll up our sleeves and get our arms and lives involved in one another, helping each other with sin, be careful. Because you're not above temptation. Even Jesus was tempted. He's the only one who hasn't succumbed to temptation. Be careful that you don't fall into temptation yourself. Friends, this text calls us to fight for one another's faith. God designed this church and every local church so that we help one another follow Jesus. Can I just close this sermon by giving three practical ways that we actually help each other follow Jesus? At our church, we take this seriously and formally through church membership. You say, oh my goodness, we've heard about church membership so often. Yeah. It's because the Bible presents it to us and it's important. And here's one reason why. Because your faith is not an individual affair. The Bible says that faith is a community project. So we actually, as part of membership, we make promises to one another, ten of them. Now that's not straight out of the scripture, but they are all scriptural. Here's three promises we make to each other. Number one, we promise to worship together. We promise to worship together. Listen to the promise. It's the the fourth promise that we make in our church covenant, and I'm quoting, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We promise to worship Together. Why? Because it's the most natural, normal, regular way that we help each other follow Jesus. That's what Nate read to us in our call to worship today. When we gather together, we help each other to hold on to our confession of faith by stirring one another up and by exhorting one another. That's what the regular gathering of the church does. And, and when we gather together, we put ourselves in the presence of that stirring up and that encouragement. And when we get away from regularly gathering together, then we miss out on the stirring up, the encouragement. It's no wonder that our faith is little by little deconstructed until we doubt and depart. We promise 
to worship together as a normal means of helping each other follow Jesus. Number two, we promise to walk together. Our third promise in our church covenant says this, we will walk together in love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercising affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonishing one another when required. We help one another follow Jesus by by walking together. We form life-on-life friendships that help each other to walk by faith. Faith is a community project. It's, it's only our Western individualism that makes faith between me and Jesus. The Bible says it's a community project. And if you feel like you don't need the community, then you don't understand the scriptures. Did you notice the end of that promise? And faithfully admonish one another when required? That means that sometimes to help each other, like really help each other, we've got to have hard conversations when we see people entering into unbiblical lifestyles and living as if they're not a follower of Jesus. But love is willing to have hard conversations because love wants to help our brothers and sisters follow Jesus. You know, sometimes this ends up in formal church discipline, which for Christians, we welcome and we submit to it. Why? Because right now, every Christian will say, I don't want to depart from Jesus. While you're thinking straight, we submit to one another and we say to each other, Don't ever let me walk away. Do everything you can. And everything you can, Jesus outlines in Matthew chapter 13 in a thing we call church discipline where the church comes together to try to snatch people before they get away. It's love in action. Number three, we don't just promise to worship together and walk together, but we promise to struggle together. Listen to promise number five of our church covenant. We will rejoice with each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. Part of the burdens and sorrows of life are the doubts we experience and the temptations we face. So the members of this church promise we will never struggle alone. Never. We're here for each other. Listen to me, friend. Here's the hope. Pain does not have to lead to despair. 
temptation does not have to lead to sin. Doubt does not have to lead to departure. The gospel is the power of God to save us from every curse under the sun. And God accomplishes his purpose through the action and the one anothering ministry of his people. The church is designed so that we help each other follow Jesus. Fight. Fight for one another's faith. Can I close this sermon just with a word to anyone here who might be deconstructing their faith? Listen, I hope that you'll consider Christianity by committing to asking more questions, not less. I hope that you'll ask those questions about God and his word and about yourself. And as you do, remember, the Jesus whose words and actions changed the world, the Jesus who rose from the dead, is the same Jesus who loves doubters. And I hope that one day, maybe soon, you'll look back and you'll see how God used this season of deconstruction to actually make your faith stronger. God still does miracles. And the best place to deal with your doubts is in the church. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray. I pray that you would fill our hearts with your mercy and your one another mightiness. I pray that you would fill our hearts with your gospel, your action of self-sacrifice where you came and rescued us. And I pray that you would fill us with that so that we will be involved actively, others-mindedly, mercifully in each other's lives, helping one another follow Jesus. And I pray that you will do what only you can do, and that is open eyes, change hearts, rescue us from our proclivity to wander. Please preserve us in the faith until we stand before you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.